0: Would you stand with us as we begin our service in opening prayer? Doug, may it prevail upon you to lead us in prayer.
1: We take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 469. 469 in the red. Hmm. 6, 5 in the Trinity. Is it just because he was playing it this morning? Maybe not. Marvelous grace of our living Lord.
0: Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 34 through 59, page 1657 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. John 6, verses 34 through 59. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. At this the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna and the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread Will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Father in heaven, may you use these words to pierce the heart of the lost, that you may infect their soul with righteousness and godliness, and that they be drawn to the cross. Have it be your will, Lord, that not only this is for the the good of them and to your glory. But Lord, for those of us that are in your, your grasps, that are yours, Lord, we be refreshed by this statement. These words are a comfort to us. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. We take your red hymnal
1: again and turn to number four hundred and seventy, four seven zero. 470 470 Thank you.
2: our text today is John chapter 6 John 6 looking at the Doctrines of grace. In our last study, we looked at the fact of total depravity, total depravity of the human heart. As Jesus, the prince of preachers, began to explain to people who were looking for a free meal ticket that they should seek the food that endures to eternal life, verse 27. And immediately, these people began to exhibit their carnality and self-righteousness and arrogance and their ignorance and their blindness. In other words, their total inability to respond aright to the teachings of the Lord. We saw as well the doctrine of sovereign grace in terms of sovereign election. Jesus told this group of followers point blank, As I told you, You have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 36, verse 37. So election is the free and sovereign choice of God, the Father, to save some sinners. We learn that the basis of God's choice is not, it is not his foreknowledge in the mere sense of premonition, but foreknowledge in the sense of foreknowing exactly what he himself has ordained. God does not know merely what is possible. Only what is certain can be known. And his foreordination has determined that God knows all. Secondly, we learn that election is eternal in origin, before the creation of the world. By decree, God fixed the number of the elect, wrote their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's unbelievable. Slew the Lamb of God for their sins, also recorded in the Old Testament, and prepared a kingdom for the elect to inherit. We saw in the principle of representation that as in Adam all men die, so in Christ all will be made alive that is, those who are in Christ, will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. Now today, I'm going to teach on the doctrine of effectual calling, another of the doctrines of grace. Once again, we return to this discourse of Jesus in John 6. Before I... Begin. I think it's fair to say that every doctrine of grace is taught by Jesus in John chapter 6. They're all here. Just do a quick review. Total inability, verse 44. No one can come. Referring, coming to him. Unconditional election of God, the Father. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me, will come to me. Particular redemption, verse 51. Speaking of himself as the bread from heaven, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And world here does not mean universalism, as is clear from verse 33, verse 35, verse 53 and following. It's the world of believers. Number four, irresistible grace, or what we're calling effectual calling. And I'm going to be addressing that today. But it's verse 44 and verse 65, which, like I said, I'm about to address. And finally, perseverance of the saints is in this chapter well, as well. Both in its preservation aspect, Jesus repeatedly says that he will never drive away or lose anyone who believes in him. That's a great promise. Verse 37, verse 39, verse 40, verse 44. He he really hammers on that. And perseverance in his charge to us to continue on in holiness. That is repeated. Charges to believe in Christ, to eat and drink of him, to learn from the Father about him. Verse 44. So, it's a partnership. He, God is persevering with us, and we're to persevere with Him. So, this is truly a remarkable passage of Scripture, and anything I've done with it today is rudimentary at best, so I commend it to your diligent digging because it is a gold mine of spiritual treasures, and I'm just kind of scratching the surface. So what effect does gospel or does the gospel have on people? This has to do with the effectual calling. The power of the gospel is in effectual calling. What do we mean by effectual calling? Well, let's just take the word effectual. If something is effectual, it means it works. It's, it's doing what it was it intended to do? It can be used in all kinds of things in industry and in your plans for a vacation, your work on your automobile it's not working very well. If it's effectual, what what you've done it means what you've done works. It solves the problem. So when we're talking in the area of spiritual things, whatever God calls, Whatever he determines will be effectual. It works. It accomplishes his will. In this text of scripture, we saw that Jesus was confronted with a group of carnal food seekers who were looking for another free meal. These were self-righteous people who believed that they could do whatever works God required. Verse 28, just tell us, Mr. Jesus, what you want us to do. I'm sure we can do it. We just don't know what you want us to do, but if you tell us, we'll pull it off. That was their attitude. They were arrogant people who demanded to seek Christ's credentials for his claims, verse 30, verse 31. And finally, they were ignorant and blind people who appeared to be tuning into Jesus' teaching. Uh, uh, They appeared that way verse 34, but who in the end were found grumbling about his teaching and denying his true identity, verse 41, verse 42. So watch out for people who just mouth things in terms of their association with Christ. By the way, if you go on TV and you look at any of the TV preachers, you'll see a lot of this mouthing what they believe, and so forth. But it's often contrary to what the Word of God teaches. Now, the Bible uses various words to describe the condition of the human heart as we witness it here. The word lost. Hmm. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Matthew 18, verse 11. They're called unbelievers, repeatedly employed by Jesus in this text, verse 36, verse 64. They're lost. Paul uses three very descriptive words in Romans 5. Christ died for the ungodly, verse 7. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Well, that's quite a catalog. Ungodly sinners who were enemies of God. We don't normally think of ourselves that way, but let's be honest, that's where we were. There was a time in our lives, maybe still is for some, when coming to God, thinking about God and so forth, you had very, very little time for any of that. That God stuff was, you know, that was for kids in Sunday school. To these we could add Jesus' descriptions. Verse 43, he calls these people grumblers. And the people who who were grumblers were And his next word, offended by the truth of the gospel, verse 61. But if we were to search the scriptures to find one word which would embrace all of these others and incorporate them in one descriptive term, I believe it would be the word Paul uses in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. The word dead may not say it all, but it certainly contains it all. Different words help us to see the nature of our particular spiritual deadness, whether we express our lifelessness in unbelief or maybe grumbling or maybe ungodly living or all boy, all of them, taking offense at the preaching of the gospel and so on. But the bottom line explanation for all of these wicked responses to Jesus, the Savior, is our deadness in spirit to the things of God. No time for God. And dead people have no spiritual abilities whatsoever. Think of that. This is a hard pill to swallow for many people. They will protest that, hey, we are very much alive. They think that they live and breathe and work and play. That proves that they're alive. They think and act and plan and execute those plans. We're alive. We're doing live things. In fact, in Ephesians 2 passage, cited earlier, where Paul uses the term dead in transgressions and sins, he goes on to say, in which you used to live. So there's some living going on here while he's using the word dead. What is this? Well, what follows is a barrage of action words describing their life following the way of the world. Verse 2. Verse 3. All of us lived, his word not mine, all of us lived among the disobedient, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. So, there's a tremendous amount of living going on in these people's lives. So how can Paul place the word dead in juxtaposition to the words, life live? Is this not self-contradictory? And if so, then it's utter nonsense. We know that two opposites cannot be true at one and the same time this would be a real contradiction in the scriptures and reason enough for us to question the validity of God's word. Well, The answer to all of this is that Paul is not talking about physiological life or even the spirit of a man which animates his thinking and activities. Paul is talking about a person's response to god god is perfectly holy he's perfectly righteous he's perfectly good so the question is can a sinful ungodly enemy of god who is constantly and willfully breaking the law of god who is skeptical as to the existence of god or of his right to rule our lives if he does exist can a person whose religion consists more of self-adulation and praise for human effort, can this kind of person want this kind of God in his life? Will he seek him and find him and embrace him finally as friend and savior? We have in our text people who hired boats Look at verse 23 and 24. And they sailed across the Sea of Galilee in search for Jesus. Wow. But when he did not cater to their misconceptions of who and what he was, they complained. Here it is. His teaching is too hard. And in fact, impossible to accept. Verse 60 oh they didn't hear what they wanted to hear and in the end they turned and walked away verse 66 and they never looked back they didn't give Jesus a second look they dropped him like a bad habit why there was no faith there was no belief in their heart for the truth that he was teaching and this is certainly true okay but why didn't they believe what's the barrier Is it a matter of them not receiving the right information? Is that why they concluded that Jesus was Mary and Joseph's son instead of God the Father's son? Verse 42. Didn't they know about the prophecies of the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem? Didn't they know about Mary and Joseph's trip there? while Mary was pregnant in the days of the census? Is there there some defect in their study habits? John 5, verse 39, Jesus said to the same group of people, you diligently, diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Wow. Well, at least they were using the right source material. They're reading the right book. But even that doesn't help. The barrier, brethren, is not misinformation, nor is it insufficient information. It is not that Jesus hasn't spoken clearly enough, even though they accuse him of, oh, hard teaching. It isn't that they have had no credible signs of Jesus' deity and power. They had many signs and many wonders, many miracles, the latest of which filled their hungry stomachs. That's what's in this tax The feeding of thousands with little scraps of food. The barrier over which these people could not climb nor circumlocute was the barrier of spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness. They seek, but they can't find. They knock. But when the door is open, they don't walk through. They ask. But when they are told, <laughs> they do not believe. But what I want you to see is that it is not just a matter of Do not believe, but rather cannot believe. Jesus himself acknowledges this in our text. Look at verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless... Hmm. What follows is the proviso which enables sinners to come to Christ, but on their own they cannot come. Why not? The barrier is spiritual deadness. This is the depravity all of us face. And I agree with Sproul, that if people can be convinced of the doctrine of total inability, for all intent and purposes, the argument is over concerning predestination and election and effectual calling and the rest. Because that truth taints all the others. Secondly, it is the doctrine of effectual calling which addresses the problem of man's spiritual inability, his deadness to spiritual matters. It's this doctrine which Jesus referred to when he observed the unbelief of his hearers, the grumbling, the arguing of their conversations, their failure to respond to his teaching by coming to him for his for life eternal. He says. Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up with the last day. Verse 43, verse 44. How in the world are we going to get dead people to respond properly to the gospel? Dead people can't respond to anything. We've all heard the same lame analogies which some preachers use to explain how people must choose Christ as their personal Savior. They say something like this. Picture a man, we are told, who has been diagnosed with a fatal disease. But though the disease is fatal, there is hope. Because the doctors have a healing medicine, which, if ingested, will in fact kill the cancer and save the man's life. All that man has to do, here it comes, is reach out and take the medicine. I mean, it's right there at the bedside, it's free. It's powerful. One dose will do the trick. But if he will not take the medicine, yeah, then he will perish. How many dead people do you know can reach out and take anything? Of course, Christ and his saving work is the powerful dose of medicine in this scenario, and the taking of the medicine is seen as the response of the will, as one believes what the doctors, the ministers, have told them, and reach out for the medicine that's on the table. And in this scenario, the sinner is seen as, well, yeah, he's, very, very ill, and it is such an illness that is fatal. He's so sick that he will die if he refuses the medicine, Christ. That's what we're told. The defect of this illustration, however, is that the Bible does not depict men as sick and dying, but as already dead. Oh, they are not on their way out with a few good breaths in them and the power to move their hand from the nightstand by the bed to their mouth with the medicine. No, they are motionless on a cold stone slab in the city morgue with pallid skin and purple lips. There's no life, brethren, no spiritual life, no appetite for God, no appreciation of God, no desire to know him in any way, shape, or form, including the salvation of their souls. That's dead. People who have invented this scenario and others like them, which depict man as sick and dying but not totally dead, do so believing that in stressing the choice of sinners to take the medicine or not, they somehow protect God from being charged with injustice in the condemnation of sinners. They say something like this, and I'm sure you've heard this, God did all that he could do. God did all that he could do, but the sinner chose not to take the medicine. So God is exonerated. Brethren, God doesn't need to be exonerated by men for his actions. He judges us, not we, him. But even more serious is the monstrous teaching, which surfaces when men say, God did all that he could do, uh, but. The disclaimer, the word but, quickly and effectively disallows the sovereignty of God to rule and overrule in the affairs of men and when God ceases to be sovereign he also ceases to be God when men deny God's sovereignty they are for all intent and purposes practical atheists we are not dualists who believe in two equally powerful beings locked in some kind of mortal combat for supremacy. No, we are theists and monotheists at that. We believe that no will is equal to or superior to the will of God Almighty. And another and perhaps more subtle reason why people hold to the sick and dying scenario view of man is to preserve the will of man, thus his dignity, to make his own choices. They believe that this is the only way to refute any charge of coercion from man's actions of faith and repentance and to preserve human responsibility. I mean, if man can't do what God commands him to do, if he can't believe in Jesus when presented with the gospel, then he's no longer responsible. And if he's not responsible, he cannot be justly condemned for disobedience. Okay, so let's take a look at these two rationales of our Arminian brethren for why they preach the way they do. Firstly, the notion that God, in order to justly justly condemn sinners, must give them a chance to believe or reject the gospel. Let me ask where in all the Bible does it ever say that God is obligated to show mercy to people who are willfully opposed to his commands, actively hostile to his will, enemies against him and his decrees as king, transgressors and breakers of his law, ungodly and defiant in their lifestyle, and grumblers and objectors to his teachings? Where do we find that anywhere in the entire Bible? I mean, if it could be shown that God were somehow the author of such sin, then the argument would be valid. But nowhere in the Bible is God depicted as the author of sin. Rather, Adam and Eve, by their own free choice, opted to believe the lie of Satan and to take of the forbidden tree. Did God permit this to happen? Yes. Could he have stopped it? Yes. That he chose not to stop it does not make God the author of sin. His part in this is righteous and good. It's our part that's the wicked part and the evil part. man used his free will to defy God and to believe Satan. Since God did not refuse to create mankind, even though he knew he would fall into sin, how is that unloving on God's part? Did he not also determine to save a people, his elect, from their sin? Was it less than love which prompted God to send his son to the cross for the redemption of his people. I return to my original question. Where in all the Bible is God ever depicted as being obligated to show mercy to people who hate him and reject his word? Must God love everyone? with saving grace in order to be a loving God? Must all men be placed on equal footing before God in order for justice to occur? Brethren, the moment we speak of God being obligated to love all men equally, then grace is no longer grace. Think about it. the very essence of grace is that it is unmerited favor from God. God may owe people justice, but never does he owe them mercy. In his own words, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Romans 9, verse 15. Neither mercy nor love towards sinners is an obligation of God. This being so, the notion that all men must be given a chance to believe the gospel in order for God to be just in his condemnation of sinners, that is completely unfounded. And I can hear the cries, unfair, unfair, that some may be thinking. But what is meant by the charge, unfair? If we mean that all men do not stand on an equal footing before God, then the charge is substantiated. The Bible is clear that Israel was chosen as God's holy nation. Think about this. While Canaan... Moab, and Egypt, there's three nations, they were all passed over by God. Christ opened Saul's blind eyes, but left the other Pharisees perish in their blindness. God does not treat every human being in history in the same way. But if we mean by unfair, unjust, then we're dealing with another matter. If the Bible is true when it declares that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, what is wrong with God choosing whom he wills to receive mercy and grace? You say, well, what do do the rest receive? They receive justice. The redeemed receive mercy. The lost receive justice. No one gets injustice. This is not evil on God's part because he owes us nothing but his wrath for our sin. Some people get the mercy which they do not deserve. That's us. Us believers. Others get the condemnation which they do deserve. No one is treated unfairly. The real question is why God would be loving and merciful to any of us. There it is. There's the mystery. Why? Because the scripture says, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. That's us too. So the anomaly is this. If all includes us too, why do we get mercy? When people ask me, do you believe that man has a free will? I answer yes. I believe that man does act freely with regard to his conduct, even in the choices he makes concerning his eternal future. Throughout our text, Jesus repeatedly points to these people, willful decisions to resist his teaching. Look at verse 36. You have seen me, he says, and still you do not believe. What's that? They're resisting. Regardless of the evidence presented by Christ, they remained unbelieving, and Jesus credits them with unbelief. No one made them skeptical. That was of their own free choice. Verse 64. What I'm saying is that God's sovereignty does not negate human freedom. What sovereignty comes to loggerheads over is not human freedom, but human autonomy. They're not the same. Autonomy, the word auto means self, and nomos meaning law. So self-law or self-governing means to have to give an answer to no one. Oh, we like that. In the day of the judges, men we read in scripture did what was right in their own eyes get off my back law I'm gonna do what I want to do go where I want to go and you have no say in the matter they became a law unto themselves the scripture says that is they made up their own rules does that sound like some country we might be living in? And this is where the battle line is drawn. It is impossible to have a sovereign God with an autonomous man. One does not have to be autonomous to be free. In one's choices, autonomous means absolute freedom. Man is free, yes, but his freedom is always less than God's. God, because he is sovereign, places restrictions upon our freedom, laws by which I am to live. And if I disobey, he has every right to strike me dead For disobedience. God is free. I am free. But God is more free than I shall ever be because he's the sovereign creator. Well, why do I have some freedom like that? Because God created us in his image. That's why. You're not a moo cow. (laughs) You're not a dog barking. You're not a cat meowing. You're the spitting image of the creator. You can think. You can decide. You can make choices. Now with regard to free will, there's another dimension that must be factored in. And that is the fall of man into sin. As a result, the sinful nature which all mankind is born with, the scriptures declare that it is out of the heart of man that all of his actions proceed. Jesus spoke a number of times about making the tree good, if one expected it to produce good fruit. Is the heart of man good? The Bible says there is none good, not even one. So if not even one man has a good heart, will there ever be found a man on the earth except Christ, who will make the good and righteous choices of believing God when he speaks and obeying his commands to forsake sin and come to Christ as Savior. The doctrine of effectual calling addresses this very issue. This is why Jesus said no one can come to me unless the father who sent me (coughs) draws him. The interpretation of this drawing of the father is given in verse 65. John 6 verse 65 where Jesus says this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enables him. Here you have Jesus giving the interpretation, the divine interpretation of his own words. When I said no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, here's what I meant. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enables him. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us the interpretation. We don't have to depend on man, Pastor Luke or any other pastor, to give us the interpretation. It's right there in the text. The drawing of God is his enabling. And the words in these two verses are not the same. Draw is a Greek word, which the the Greek dictionary defines as to compel by irresistible force. Ooh, I didn't know that. Now you know. To compel somebody by irresistible force. (laughs) there's a far cry from the explanation of many that it simply means that, well, God woos the sinner to come to Christ. I'll tell you what, he, he does more than woo us. Compel is more dynamic and active than woo So I like that word. That's good. The other word he uses in verse 65 is a Greek word. Give. Yeah. But is used in the wide application including bestow or grant or bring forth. Since verse 65 is an explanation of the Lord in verse 44, it follows that the Father's compulsion to come to Christ is what has bestowed on the believing disciples and that compulsion is, in fact, their enabling. And the charge is here leveled. Oh, then God brings sinners to Christ against their will. No. 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 We've already demonstrated that a man will always choose according to the desire of his heart. We have the natural ability to choose whatever we desire, but it is in our desire that we are dead spiritually. That's where the deadness is. Genesis 6 verse 5, Describes the desires of fallen man's heart. Here's what it is. I'm reading it. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart are only evil all the time. Oh boy. There's the dark, dark truth about deadness of which the scriptures speak. Ineffectual calling a new heart is given by God. The dead, stony heart is removed and a living, beating heart that now desires God is implanted in its place. So, well, where do you get that? Well, it's in the scriptures. Let me read it for you. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and following. I will give you a new heart, says God. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from, from you your heart of stone. That's the dead heart. And give you a heart of flesh. There's the live heart and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to keep my laws. What a difference. So an effectual calling, a new heart is given by God and that dead stony heart is removed. And now we have a heart that is desirous of God implanted in its place. Before a person can make a free and willing choice of God, his heart must be given the desire to want God. Faith is not the means of the new birth, but the result of it. Faith is the new want to, Reaching out to God. Jesus says in our text, verse 63, the spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. Effectual calling is practically identical to regeneration and one can no more prevent the new birth from occurring by an act of the human will then one can prevent one's own physical conception and birth by the act of the will the one the moment one is born again, he is alive in Christ and he's in the kingdom. so well, what does that mean? It means that we do not believe and then come alive no. We are made alive and then we believe. There's no spirituality in a dead heart. There are no correct decisions without the Holy Spirit. So, what are the conclusions? Effectual calling is effectual just because it is the sovereign call of God to the sinner, which is inward and changes the heart. God makes it effectual. It's the calling spoken of in Romans 8, verse 30 which results in justification. It's not the external call, which comes to all sinners every time a gospel sermon is preached. If it is the spirit of the living God who gives life and the flesh counts for nothing, it's foolish to assume that sinners choose to respond to Christ before they are born again. Simply put, this is love, I'm reading scripture, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, verse 10. and The problem of Jesus' audience was their unbelief and denial of his sonship. Verse 41, 42 of our text in John 6. They were dead spiritually. God had not taken up residency in their hearts. Then finally, the doctrine of effectual calling blows the God is a gentleman doctrine of Arminian preaching right out of the water. You've heard this. I'm sure you've heard this. Well, don't you know that God is a gentleman? He will not force his way into your heart. He's waiting at the door of your heart for you to open it and let him come in. What an anemic and paltry portrayal of God that is. Poor comfort to the man in hell who I'm sure would have preferred a little compulsion by God to deliver him from the consequences of his sin. effectual calling is compulsory, drawing to Christ by God. And if God did not exercise his sovereignty over our natural inclinations, there wouldn't be a safe sinner in the universe. That's how desperately wicked and opposed to God and his holiness we are. You know, that's what it means to be dead to God. And then thirdly, the doctrine of effectual calling does no violation to the gospel requirements of faith and repentance. When I said that effectual calling is compulsory, I was referring to the new heart that God gives. But once that new heart is in place, there must be, yes, the evangelistic response of turning away from sin and turning to Christ. That's what the new heart's going to do. Faith and repentance are both God's gift, according to the Scripture, but once given, they are exercised by the man or, man or woman that has the new heart. Let me read it for you. Jesus' words, verse 37. All that the Father gives to Christ, what? Will come. Ah. The will of the Father is that, quoting scripture, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Verse 40. The exercise of faith in Christ finally is part of the enabling that comes from God. Verse 64, verse 65. And then finally, effectual calling demonstrates that salvation is not simply a possibility provided to sinners, but it is a, procur- a procurement based on the un alterable will of our Sovereign God. He's not dangling possibilities in front of people. Wouldn't you like this carrot? It's so tasty. It's for you if you want it. Who wants it? Nobody. Nobody wants it. The sinful heart doesn't want God. We're not talking here of a kind of prevenient grace which gives all men the possibility of choosing Christ. But rather compels none to respond right to the message of the gospel. Oh, you can have it, but we're not going to compel you to believe or to accept what's true. <laughs> Let me ask, what good is that? I'm sorry. What good is that? I need sovereign grace, which actually brings about the desired effects of God's will to save. That's what I need if I'm going to get saved. Sproul put it this way, without regeneration... No one will ever come to Christ. With regeneration, no one will ever reject Him. God's saving grace affects what He intends to be affected by it. Goes back again then on the gracious power. Brethren, that's the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. Romans 1, verse 16. The reason the call, of salva- call to salvation is effective is because of God. And I like it so much that he's not dangling a carrot in front of us and saying, but you know, I'll leave it up to you. You want the crown jewel or not? You want eternal life or not? It's up to you. No, it's up to him. It's up to him. And granted, in him doing his work in us, He is going to grant us faith and grant us repentance and forgiveness and all of the graces necessary to reach out and grab hold of Christ and Christ alone. But since it's God's work, I think we have a lifetime before us of Being thankful that God chose us to love Him and to love His Son. Because, as we read in the scriptures, there's no resident love there. By nature, we are opposed to God. No one's going to boss us around, boy. You can keep your Bible, I don't care what that says. I'll live my own life. Okay. You can do that. And you'll die by your own life. Lived. And when you die, it isn't the end, it's only the beginning. For the scripture says it is appointed unto men to die once, but afterwards to face judgment. It also says we'll all stand before the judgment seat of who? Christ. What you do with Christ. That's God's son. What you do with Christ. That's the key. So, yeah, you can, um, you can live your life without God. You can die in your life without God. But then you're going to face God. And his question will be, what have you done with my son, Jesus, who shed his blood for sinners, but you would have none of it. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Lord, please send your Holy Spirit upon us. Teach us something of ourselves. May we take a good, long look into the mirror of God's Word and see ourselves as you see us, so that we might repent of what is there displayed. Mostly we think we're pretty good. We get into that uh, self-centered, well, I'm not a murderer. Well, I am not a fornicator. Well, I didn't steal from anybody. Well, and we start to justify ourselves as though we are exempt from the other People in the category of human being. But we have forgotten that just the telling of one lie. Oh, it's in the Revelation. Hell is for, John writes, all liars. Oh. If lying is a federal offense, I'm in trouble. Yeah, and you need a savior for that, and you can't save yourself from it, because the ledger, sh- the ledger sheet, has all the times you have lied from day one to where you are now, and it's monumental. Not just the lies, but what about the immoral thoughts? In actions, they're there. They're described. They're on the ledger. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I want the Judge to be my lawyer. I want Jesus to plead my sins. In my case before Himself, and I want His blood to cover all of my sins Lord may that be true of everyone here we can't plead our own case we have nothing with which to plead may you show us our great need but then go from there and show us the great solution wow God is actually giving his solution pray that we'll accept it. for your glory for our good, we pray these things. Amen. From the Red Hymnal, Trinity 471. few words in that hymn, Lord, but boy, what did you do say to us? You loved us first. Oh, when we look into the Bible, what do we discover? David says to you that you wrote his name in the book of life before the creation of the world. That's your children. We're so thankful that we're not an
0: afterthought.
2: That we are unpurposely saved from our sin. May we recognize that. May we love you for that. May we serve you in obedience because of it. May we get the message out to our lost and dying world. Everyone that thinks they're okay, they're okay, they're okay. but they've never given God the time of day. So they're not okay. Stir our hearts this day, save whom you will, in Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed.